So this is part two of the story I began Sunday. If you and I had been with the apostles on that Thursday evening of that first Holy Week, this might have been the kind of conversation we would have heard. Sunday was the day. I mean, I could just feel it. If he had called us to take Jerusalem back, thousands, thousands of men would have responded. Just the Galileans alone outnumber Romans by five to one, ten to one, and the Judeans would have joined us. Man, he had them in the palm of his hand. If he had just said, today's the day we take back the holy city from these infidels, it would have happened right then. And instead he started crying. I just don't get it. Yeah, Sunday was great. But Monday, Monday was the day. I mean, he single-handedly took the temple. He was a lion. No one could stand against him. And look, it is not enough to fight Rome. We can kill every Roman in Israel. But if the priests are still in power, if the aristocracy is still there, Rome will be back before we turn around. Yeah, if he'd called people to arms on Monday, there wouldn't have been a Roman left alive in the city by nightfall. By the time they heard about it up in Caesarea, the entire countryside would have been mobilized. The aristocracy would have been in prison. But instead of calling people to arms, he started teaching them from Leviticus. I just don't get it. What was he thinking? Why is he waiting? The blacksmith doesn't wait for the fire to die down before he forges the sword. The days leading up to the feast were nonstop, edge of your seat, exciting. Each night was spent decompressing up in Bethany. But each day was filled with conflict, with tension, with the prospect of revolution. On Sunday, they marched into the city accompanied by cheering throngs. On Monday, Jesus took over the temple for an entire day. On Tuesday and Wednesday, he met one challenge after another all day long. The priests, the teachers of the law, the Pharisees, they grilled him looking for a weakness for anything they could use against him. It was almost like the high priest inspecting the Passover lamb for a blemish. In fact, it wasn't almost like it. It was just like it. On Wednesday, Jesus stunned the disciples by telling them that the temple would be torn down Block from block, there wouldn't be one block left standing on another, and the city would be destroyed. Dumbfounded, they asked him when this would happen and what the sign of his coming would be. You know, when we hear that, we think of Jesus' coming at the end of the age. We think of the second coming, the return of Christ. And we assume the disciples were thinking the same thing. They didn't know anything about a second coming, They weren't expecting a return of Christ. He was already with them. The word that they used, parousia, it was a technical term in Greek culture to refer to the official visit of a king or a ruler. 
When the Roman emperor came to your city, when he made his appearance at your city, it was called his parousia. Jews use that same term to refer to the ascendancy of the Messiah and his conquest of the nations. And during this time, when they said that, they meant the Romans. So when the disciples asked, what will be the sign of your parousia? They weren't thinking about people living 2,000 years from now. What, how are they going to know when you're going to return? They were thinking tomorrow or the next day. What sign are you going to give us that you're about to act? It's Wednesday, and what a day that was, wound down. They all returned to Bethany, and something happened that pushed Judas Iscariot over the edge. Judas was one of the 12 apostles. The name Iscariot actually means Judas of Kerioth, which was a village in Judea. And what that means is that of the 12 apostles, only one of them came from Judea. Judeans thought of themselves as more sophisticated, more theologically informed than these people from Galilee. Judas was from Judea. He was already impatient and upset at the way Jesus was handling things. And that evening, when Lazarus' sister Mary broke a bottle of crazy expensive perfume, ointment, don't think of perfume like our perfume, and poured it on Jesus, he got angry. And he got everyone else stirred up. This is outrageous. This is offensive. It's a terrible waste. We're always talking about helping the poor. Well, this could have been used to help lots of poor people. This is over 300 denarii. The average person doesn't make that in a whole year. Think of what we could have done with that money. Judas, we read in one gospel, Judas started this. But in the others, that other disciples got riled up with him. And some of them were complaining too, until Jesus said, leave her alone. What she did was beautiful, and it's never going to be forgotten. After that, Judas left. He went out. The others probably assumed he was going to visit friends because he was from Judea and hadn't lived here for the previous three years. But instead, he went to the chief priests, and he was furious. He felt mistreated. Nobody ever listened to him. They treated him like he was second class. But his motives were so knotted up that even he couldn't have told you what was going on in his head. He may well have told himself that Jesus was never going to take a stand until he had to. Well, now he would have to. He'd be forced to fight, and the revolution would finally begin. And so Judas was doing him a favor. However he worked it out in his own head, he justified himself the way people always do. On the day of preparation, Jesus told Peter, who was probably the oldest, certainly the boldest of the disciples, and John, the youngest, probably the most reticent of the disciples, to go into the city and prepare the Passover. The weird thing is, he didn't tell them where to go. It was like something out of a spy movie. He told them, you're going to go through the gate of the city. Told them which gate to go into. The city has gates on each side. Go through the gate, and when you do, someone's going to meet you. A man carrying a jar of water. That was odd. In that society, men didn't carry water. Women did. So that would be a strange thing to be met by this guy carrying a jar of water. They don't say anything to each other, but they turn and follow him. 
into the house where he leads, and then they ask the household, sort of the major domo of the household, where is the room where my master may celebrate the Passover? And he'll show you a large upper room, Jesus said. Why not just give them the address? They had addresses in those days. Because Jesus knew what Judas was doing. If he had simply given them the address, the special guard would have had that place surrounded before he even arrived. And that would ruin everything. When they arrived early that evening, Judas was as jumpy as a cat. Did Jesus already know? I mean, why else would he keep this place a secret? He must know. When they entered the upper room, everything was ready. The low tables, don't think of our tables up here, think of tables down like this. And the reclining couches were all in place. Each disciple had already been assigned a place, which was customary in Jewish tradition. And surprisingly to Judas, he was seated right next to Jesus. That's one of the two places of highest honor. What was going through his head when he saw that? Maybe maybe he should call this whole thing off. But how could he do that? He'd already made a deal with the devil. If he backed out now, they'd throw him in prison or do something worse. I, I can just see him thinking, what have I done? What have I done? Was there any way out of this? His mind was racing at 100 miles an hour. And he was trying to act like everything was totally cool. And here he was, seated this far from Jesus. In fact, on the reclining couches, you leaned over on your arm like this so that the next guy was right next to you. He probably thought Jesus could hear his heart beating. The table placement bothered some of the other disciples too, or at least I think it did. Why was Peter the leader of the disciples, the de facto leader, everyone knew Peter was the leader. Why wasn't he sitting next to Jesus? Instead, Judas and young John Bar Zebedee, they're in the places of honor. These things were important to Jewish people in this time. There must have been some trouble because we read that as the evening progressed, the disciples got into an argument about which of them was most important, which of them would hold the highest place in the coming kingdom. Imagine how Jesus felt after three years of teaching and modeling love and servanthood. These guys are having an argument on the eve of the crucifixion about which one of them is most important. It's enough to make you throw your hands up in despair. That's not what Jesus did. He didn't throw up his hands. He took off his clothes. He stripped down to his waist. It was shocking. You know, I actually thought about doing this. And I thought people will miss everything else that I say. (laughs) But it was that shocking to them. They were like, what is going on? He stripped down to his waist, wrapped a long towel around him. He looked just like a minor household slave. And he began washing each of their feet, including Judas's. The disciples were mortified. They were so embarrassed. Jesus obviously knew what they'd been arguing about, and this was a rebuke. But it was more than a rebuke. It was an object lesson. So after he'd washed their feet, this is what we read just a few moments, Tom read to us, 
And he put his clothes back on. He sat down at the table and he said, do you understand what I've just done? You call me teacher and Lord, and you're right, I am. If I, the teacher and Lord, have washed your feet, you ought to wash one another's feet. I've given you an example that you should do as I've done. Not long after that, Jesus seemed very emotional, and he said to them, one of you is going to betray me. All of them, except one, were totally surprised. Each one wondered, except one, if he was the one. So at this point, it hadn't occurred to them that the betrayal would be anything other than a slip-up. The idea that one of them would intentionally betray Jesus didn't even cross their minds. Except, of course, Judas's. As the meal was wrapping up, Jesus looked right at him and he said, what you do, do it quickly. The others thought that Jesus must be talking about giving alms on Passover. Do it before Passover is over. But Judas used the opportunity to run off to the rulers and tell them where Jesus was. Can you imagine what he was thinking as he left that house? He must know. But maybe he doesn't. Why would I be in the place of honor? But he must know. But maybe he just wants me to give alms. But if that's the case, why didn't he mention it before? He knows. He knows. He must know. But maybe he doesn't. This is what's going through his head. Jesus knew how long it would take Judas to reach the high priests. He knew how long it would take them to put together a strike force, and then how long it would take them to reach the upper room. He was determined to use every minute he had, preparing his disciples for what was about to happen. He told them more than once, repeatedly, love each other. Listen to me, love each other. He told them that God would take care of them in his absence. He told them that the Holy Spirit would come into their lives in a way they had never experienced before. He talked to them about prayer. He warned them about trials. He assured them he would come back. And while all of this was going on, Judas is walking as fast as he can to the government offices. He's afraid, he's confused, and he's angry. When you do something bad to someone, it always makes you angry. He was angry. He kept telling himself it wasn't his fault. He had no choice in this. When he got there, he intended to give the rulers the location, get his money, and leave. Disappear. Instead, they said, you're coming with us. The first time that he talked to these rulers, they treated him like he was someone important. They paid him respect. Now they treat him like dirt. This is a low-life traitor. They tell Judas to wait, and waiting seems to last forever. Every minute feels like an hour. When they finally got, for lack of a better word, a posse together, Judas had to lead them to the upper room. I, I think he was so worried he couldn't think straight. What would Jesus say? What would, when he walked in, what would they say? What would the apostles say? He'd spent the last three years with them, night and day. There would be a fight. Some of his friends might die. Whatever else happened, Jesus would know now that he was the one who betrayed him. He'd burned his bridges. As they approached the house, 
the commander sent people around back. When the place was surrounded, he and his men went quietly up the steps, burst through the door. They found no one. The commander stared daggers at Judas. Where were they? Were they even here to begin with? And Judas, for him, this got real all of a sudden, and it got dangerous. Is trying to think where Jesus could be. Jesus had used every last minute and then left right before they arrived and headed to the Mount of Olives. Judas thought, Bethany, maybe he went to Lazarus' house. Maybe he went to the temple. No, that doesn't make any sense. Maybe Judas sent them two or three places. But one of them was known as Gethsemane, the olive press. Between the time Judas left them in the upper room and the time he found them in Gethsemane, hours had gone by, and Jesus had used every minute to prepare his people. He told them that things were going to get really tough, and he was going to leave them. He also told them that God's spirit would be with them, and they would have each other. They must stick together. They must love each other. That was crucial. He painted them a dark picture of the present, but a bright picture of the future. He warned them he was going away, but he promised them that he would come back. In the meantime, he told them, it's vital that you remember what I've commanded you. They must obey his orders. They were directions for living in God's kingdom. He told them how to request help from God and promised them the Holy Spirit would remind them of all of this. And then he prayed for them to have unity. Not long after that prayer, Judas showed up with a posse. The disciples scattered, and Jesus was arrested. He was led off to court. They didn't have night court. In fact, that was illegal, but he was led off to a kangaroo court. And a few hours later, the trial was over. In the morning before the apostles even knew what had happened, Jesus was on his way to a state-mandated execution. And you know what? Everything he taught them that night and for the previous three years seemed to fly right out of their heads. They were terrified, and for good reason. The chief priests had been asking questions about them to find out who they were. And they were horrified, but mostly they were profoundly, painfully confused. This just couldn't be happening. This couldn't be real. But the things Jesus taught had not really flown away. They remembered in a way they could not have before how Jesus took the unleavened bread and broke it and said to them, this is my body, which is for you. They remembered how he took the cup and showed them and said, this is my blood of the new covenant poured out for you and then had them each drink it. The Passover gave the Jewish people an identity. This bread and cup gave the disciples, the new people of God, the people of Jesus, an identity. They didn't understand. They wouldn't understand until Sunday. But they had his promise that the meal they ate now was a token 
of the meal they would eat in its fullness. We have the same promise. We, the new people of God, the people of Jesus, when we eat this bread and drink this cup, we say we are yours. We say and we choose yet again to be the people of Jesus in good times, in bad times, and at all times. The people of Jesus. God, bring us to the table. And help us see here our redemption, our salvation, and the blood and body of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.